Because there's always more to learn, join us for Enlighten Me. Each episode takes on one topic, one question, maybe even a controversial idea, and we go on a deep dive with our expert researchers to share some facts and shed some light on the subject. We learn something new every episode, and hopefully you will too. Listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. New episodes released each month. Hello and welcome to Big Ideas, a podcast from Texas State University. I'm your host, Dan Seed, from the School of Journalism and Mass Communication. This month, we're joined by Dr. David Coleman, the director of the Whitliff Collections here on campus. Most people are familiar with the Lonesome Dove Archive, the Music Archive, but maybe its most outwardly visible collection is that of Edward Curtis, whose photographs from his monumental publication, The North American Indian, adorn the walls of the gallery. Dr. Coleman is here to discuss this amazing collection. It's, it's astounding how vast this is and discuss some of the controversies surrounding Curtis's photos. Dr. Coleman, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Good to see you. And so you've been the director of the Whitliff Collections for a dozen years now. What fascinates you about doing this kind of work? Wow, that is a great question. I did come in 2011, and it's an amazing place because we explore the culture, the creative culture, as we say, of this region. And we feel that people who know more, a little bit more about kind of where they come from, will lead a a richer life. And there is just, as we all know, an endless ability for people who live in this area to create photography, music, writing about this region. And we just love to celebrate it, show it off to the students and to the general public, and maybe show them something they they hadn't seen before or listen to a song they hadn't quite heard before. So it's, it's endless fun. And for you, you've done this work around the country in your career, and you kind of touched on it a little bit in your answer there. But what does make the Whitliff Collections unique in your view, having been to other archives and other other places like this? What makes it unique? Yeah, and that's really why I came to the Whitliff Collections and to Texas State was that real unique focus we have on this plot of ground, I guess you could say, on our on this region and the, and the culture that comes from it. There are many, many fine repositories and archives and collections from, you know, museums to archives. There aren't many that really focus on their local area. For us, we mean when we say that, it's really kind of talking about the whole Southwest region. Huge um, region. And, Huge. Yeah. And, and and we expanded to Mexico in especially in terms of the photography, because we feel there's there may be a border, you know, political border, but culturally and certainly in terms of how people make images, there's a lot of ebb and flow just within this region. So I was really captivated by the idea that you could really just focus on a few different media in a particular region. And as we know, you know, artists love to talk with other artists. They, visual artists love to talk with writers, musicians love to talk with visual art. You know, there is a certain synergy that creatives get when they talk with each other. And, you know, when you focus on one particular, uh, I guess, geographic idea, they're often dealing 
with themes that are very common for that area and then they their work may respond to other elements of other works they've seen or other historical acts they know we could talk about lonesome dove forever and you know larry mcmurtry was trying to write an an anti-western i guess you could say and it ends up being you know the, one of the more archetypal westerns of all time <laughs> and so he's dealing with these historical elements but he's also dealing with kind of the creativity of this area and sometimes those myths are kind of too strong to overcome so anyway don't don't you'll get me started i can go on for hours about the rich cultural heritage that we have here and as i mentioned at the start of the show you're here with us to talk about the edward curtis collection from his work the north american indian which is a magnus opus of cultural understanding or cultural showcase mm -hmm. and art as you, you just touched on it is an astounding undertaking curtis took 40,000 photos between 1907 and 1930 ultimately 2,234 or so of those were published across 20 bound volumes, which is, uh, again, mind-blowing in our modern digital age to think of these in, in book form. So let's start here with this for our audience that may not be familiar. Who was Edward Curtis? So Edward Curtis, I, I may end up quoting Lonesome Dove here, and there were, Edward Curtis was a man with a vision. And he is someone who was a kind of young photographer, portrait studio photographer in Seattle, Washington. And through a series of kind of closely timed events right at the beginning of the 20th century, kind of 1890s, he was exposed to people of wealth, people of power. And he also got this vision of documenting the North American Indian project. And it, it happened kind of drips and drab over time for him and then ended up being this amazing idea of trying to, in his mind, document what was a, a culture that was quickly dying away. And part of this, right, it comes from funding from some rather well-known rich individuals at the turn of the 20th century as well, because he's got to have that backing to produce the work. That's right. And he, so he wins a photo contest that he entered and it allowed him to go to Teddy Roosevelt's estate and photograph his children and also meet TR, which was, of course, important. They strike it up. I think we, we certainly see Curtis as this very charismatic kind of guy. And Teddy Roosevelt offers to write him a letter of introduction. Curtis then takes that and goes to visit J.P. Morgan, the financier who basically rescued the country from bankruptcy not too long before that in New York, and convinces Morgan, and then Morgan kind of convinces him as well to shape this project in a certain way that uh, you, you reference these volumes and kind of produce this massive project that would appeal kind of to the uh, high-end book collector as well as to universities. And this project is unique in that it straddles that line between, we'll say, the 19th century and before and the early days of the 20th century. Was there this kind of reasoning or impetus at that time to get out there and document this culture at a time when things are rapidly shifting from the era of the Plains and the Pioneers to a mm -hmm. more modern consumption of the, the North American Native culture? The American Indian at that time, you know, was 
was very much in the popular imagination. This, at this point, they had been relegated to living, uh, you know, on reservations. They had uh, decreased from a, you know, a population that may have been between, I don't know, seven and 10 million to about a quarter million by the beginning of the century. There were Wild West shows. There, there was a very strong effort from the government and uh, society to put the Native American kind of in the rearview mirror and to close the frontier and to look back on a culture. And there were a lot of well-meaning humanitarians as well that advocated that the only way that the Native Americans would be able to really survive would be to assimilate the white culture and to give up their language, to give up their culture, to give up their music, to give up their story, you know, all of that. And in a sense to adopt Western culture. And that would be the only way they would be able to, you know, survive, I guess. And so this was very much debated in, you know, in the newspapers of the day and the magazines of the day. And what Curtis was able to do and trying to do, he wasn't unique in doing this, but he had this vision to do it on such a scale that was kind of a an ethnography through the photographs, which we know best, but also through documenting their songs, their stories, et cetera. And I mean, he thought the treatment that they were receiving was terrible. You know, it's it's a complex time and all these kinds of very important issues are very complex. And he kind of is looking back nostalgically, but also in a weird way, kind of advocating for their survival and advocating for their... Um, really their honor and their cementing a record of their culture as significant and important. Yeah, I was going to say, Curtis strikes me from reading about him and, and seeing his work as almost a romantic, looking back on a time and wishing like, man, I wish I had been there, been born 30 years earlier, you know, that he's kind of a man, uh, not of his time in a sense, in, in that way. So you're as intimately familiar with his photos as anyone, but let's talk about what exactly resides at the Whitliff Collections, and how did this collection make its way here? Okay, so when Curtis approached Morgan, Curtis wanted to produce about a hundred sets of these 20-volume publications, bound volumes and then portfolios. What Morgan convinced him to do was to try to do a run of 500 of them instead of 100. They ended up being bought. He didn't sell out the whole edition, I guess you'd say, but a lot of private people in a lot of universities and libraries and public libraries did purchase them over time. And so we, it was actually a fairly recent thing for us to acquire this set of volumes of the North American Indian. It was actually purchased with funds donated by Bill and Sally Whitliff. I think Bill had a real attraction to Curtis as this grand visionary, and also just Bill loved photography and loved portraits, especially that were powerful. And Curtis certainly fits that bill. So Bill and Sally, in the years that I was talking with them when I got here, they felt that that was something we should really try to acquire. And then through the good graces of fate and a lot of determination, we were finally able to acquire a set. And you mentioned the photos and, and how powerful they are. And for anybody that hasn't been to the collections to see them, I, I encourage you to, to do that. So it's difficult, right, on audio to talk about images. But 
<laughs> are there any images that stand out to you for their subject material, their aesthetic, photos that if you were taking someone to the Whitliff collections for the first time, that you would say, we have to see this one? I'm going to go in a different direction, which is, I think you've got to see the self-portrait of mm. Curtis, um, because I think you get so much of the character of the man through his his facial hair, his hat. Um, there's a lot of character in that shot. And uh, we actually commissioned a, a bust, a bronze portrait from a Philadelphia sculptor, kind of modeled on that self-portrait. You can get a lot through that. But Curtis's images, you know, and we rotate them out from time to time. So it's especially difficult to talk about one image because you never know when someone's going to come in and, sure. and see something else. But what I think Curtis was able to do that was especially powerful with the medium of photography was capture, you know, an exact likeness of someone to really show you what someone looked like, but also kind of put the viewer in a timeless mode where you're looking at this person with great honor and great nobility, or sometimes just great humility or humbleness. And you get such power from someone who, you know, and some of them are looking directly into the camera, others may not be. But you get such, I think, profound respect is a word I use a lot when talking about Curtis's images. Now, he, he got up some, to some tomfoolery that we can talk about a little bit, sure. too. But all in all, one of the, I think it's up now, and I tend to leave this this one shot up because it's so, I don't know, it, it helps kind of launch the project. He did a portrait of a woman named Princess Angeline, who was the youngest daughter of Chief Seattle. Of course, he was based in Seattle. They, the city had tried to kind of move her to a reservation, and she refused. She was making a terrible you know, barely able to survive on uh, doing laundry for people, I think doing some clam dinging. And he kind of wraps her up where you see this face and this amazing portrait of a woman whose face has clearly been exposed to the sun a great deal. It's kind of this leathery face. And you could make that look comical. You could make it look ghoulish. You could, you know, you could, a photographer can do a lot with, with a face with lighting. He simultaneously shows you exactly, I mean, you really feel you are sitting there looking at her or standing there looking at her, but also giving this character and respect and nobility of her lineage and, and that she's, you know, an important person and should be respected as much as anyone you run across on the street. What strikes me about the images and the way that you're, you're talking about them and from what I've seen about them or, or seen of them being up there is the images don't have the kind of imperfections that we typically see in pre-film or early film photos. There's almost a modern clarity to them. Do you find that? And, and how does that technique help make this collection resonate more than a century or close to a century in the case of his later images since they were made? Because these people lived so long ago, but it feels like they're with us because Curtis was such a skilled photographer. You know, it's no accident that he had such success when, you know, that's his background, his studio portraiture. So he's kind of able to create the conditions of a of a permanent studio with him in, in the field, as we say, you know, when he's visiting these reservations. And he's very carefully controlling the light, the, you know, I think what 
thinking about other photographs, the American Indian at the time, I mean, he's really filling, this is going to get a little technical, but he's filling the picture frame with someone's face often right. or, their, or their chest and head. It's traditional um, for the audience. It's traditional kind of framing like what you would see like nowadays in a television interview where it's right. it's chest up, head fills the frame. Think of a, a movie close up almost in a right. photograph. And they're very, yeah, they are very close up. And most of the collectible cards and photographs when people, there was, as I said before, there's so much nostalgia in the U.S. at this time already about the American Indian that eventually that nostalgia itself kind of dies out at the end of Curtis's project. But you don't have, you know, that's, there are photographs taken with a curiosity and Curtis is not approaching this with curiosity or trying to delight someone and be a collectible kind of photograph. He's not in there for that purpose. He's in there to create a document that will last forever. I mean, it, that's that kind of is part and part with someone with this kind of a vision and this kind of a project. You know, it's kind of a crazy thing to think that you would spend 30 years of your life <laughs> photographing mm -hmm. individuals that may or may not want their picture taken and to with this grand cause, right? So that monumental project, I think, really filters in uh, into these monumental portraits. And again, we're joined by Dr. David Coleman, the director of the Whitliff Collections. And earlier, I touched on this, you touched on it as well, this idea of some tomfoolery in Curtis's photos. Curtis mainly used a now largely forgotten photographic technique called dry plate negatives. And it's from those glass negatives where the controversy surrounding his photos really comes from. What we see in the published photos isn't exactly what Curtis saw or photographed. And in some cases, what we see isn't exactly how his native subjects lived at that time. That's correct, right? Right, for sure. I think, and it's interesting. I think I can keep it pretty brief. Curtis finishes this project He's not doing well in 1930 when the, when this project ends. He's able to publish the last two volumes, working mostly in Oklahoma at that time. And he's destitute. He's he's been he's gone through a terrible divorce and lost all the rights to his images. And he's largely forgotten as an image maker. And then in the early 1980s, so we're jumping way forward. The photography as a market in collectibles starts to really pick up in the 70s. And people start to look at Curtis's photos with new eyes and really appreciate on one hand, but then also, yeah, look at it with a little critical eye mm. for his work and what he's doing. And and we can kind of talk about some of those things. There's kind of the, the negative side and then there's the, well, maybe not so negative side as well. He was, everyone was living on a reservation at that point. He does have them, as far as we know, you know, do some recreations and kind of set up scenes mm -hmm. of like going on a, on a, you know, a war party kind of thing where people are wearing traditional clothing or ceremonial clothing or clothing that their grandparents had worn. I think the vast majority of that clothing and the artifacts they wear and the accoutrement or whatever are appropriate for, you know, the nation that they were part of. There have been people who had definitely noticed at that time in the 80s that sometimes a certain uh, trinket or artifact might kind of go from one tribe to the other uh, when he was publishing them. And that's, you know, that was inappropriate for him to do. 
sometimes he would just kind of throw a blanket over them and that would be a plus in a, in a certain way because it really focused the viewer's attention on the face but that blanket kind of goes from you know tribe to tribe or nation to nation as well he also does some uh, what's called retouching and right with the dry plate you can basically ink out it's you know it's a photoshop principle right where you can basically fix, yeah. ink out some artifacts that may not be convenient like a you know western culture uh western things like a clock i was say the clock one is one of the more famous yeah examples yeah and i mean that's one image out of the 2230 whatever that got published and so anyway he gets very controversial treatment in the in the early 80s and then as people start to look more and reflect more you know he is photographing some people wearing button shirts so the he doesn't completely get rid of western uh mm -hmm. evidence of western culture is a little bit more accurate i currently i have a photograph of uh wichita named henry who's wearing glasses and it's like well you know he's not doing it uniformly across the board right. and it's complex it's complicated and i think curtis was a complicated guy i think in general he was trying to honor the the heritage that the person sitting in front of him would be thinking about but when they were living on reservations i think they often had trunks of clothing of their ceremonial clothing that was passed down to them mm -hmm. from their parents or grandparents and so they would put that on you know we we think that curtis did that with willing subjects you know mm -hmm. who were willing to sit for him have their portrait taken but it you know like so many things it, it ends up the more you look, the more you kind of realize that the one version of how you interpret him is not necessarily going to hold forth. And I should should add, certainly, that, you know, a lot of Native cultures now really love Curtis photographs, one, because it's, you know, the only record of their ancestor, right? I mean, it's it's, and they're typically beautiful portraits, and very respectfully done. I come back to that word respect again. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of Native Americans who's either, you know, whether it was their nation or or some others that were being photographed by Curtis, you know, I think they respect his attitude in general. There's a lot of writing in these books on top of the photography. And he, you know, he's not shy with editorializing a little bit about the way the government has treated these people. So, you know, you, you need the fuller picture to get a better appreciation of where he's where he's coming from sure and that's a, that's always the challenge too right is that you've got the visuals and people are drawn to visuals not necessarily maybe the entire collection so it's hard to put that stuff into context sure. i think one of the points that you brought up about the photos you know the fact is like you said the, the the photos are very dignified but that's also one of the controversies that follows curtis is that he's setting up these photos like you said like let's go out on the war path and let's be out here when in reality, that wasn't their reality at that time, which is one of the shortcomings that this, for somebody that's editorializing in the written portion of it, this was seems like a missed opportunity to truly show what life was like at that time, rather than hearkening back to 30 or 40 or 50 or 100 years ago. Yeah, I, I think he struggled with that. The images from the last two volumes, especially the one that I've referenced a little bit before with in Oklahoma, they're not as grand. They're not as beautiful. He's 
by the 1920s, probably mid-20s or late-20s when he's photographing those, that's a big difference in time between 1900 or 1906 when he's just starting out. Sure. And so the living conditions have deteriorated and, and he's a little bit more real in those. But I think it's always fair to, at least on one level, judge an artist for how what their intent was and did they succeed in that intent? And you can certainly talk about whether the value system that person had at that time is appropriate to today's value system or does it match up fully? Oh, or, always difficult. Right. Yes. And are there are there elements that made sense then and still make sense now or or not? You know, I think ultimately, yeah, right. I mean, there's the cliche of kind of the noble savage, right? And that's done largely because you're trying to put the past behind you and be done with maybe some not so pleasant details, you know, in terms of the government's approach to assimilating the Native American culture into Western culture. I certainly don't think Curtis was, he was not on a documentary project. He was not trying to document this is the way they are living now. Mm -hmm. He'd never certainly would have gotten funding from JP Morgan on a project like that. But he was, and it was, I mean, it, you know, he was not the only person to be thinking about this. It was very much part of the time to be thinking about this culture is disappearing and that's a shame. And so let's document for future generations what that looked like. And it, yes, it was a bit of a recreation. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, we should always own up to that. And I, you know, when, in the space that we have to exhibit it, it's wonderful to walk people through that gallery because you have a lot of people who come in and say like, oh, Curtis, these are amazing portraits. And oh my God, the you know, very nostalgic. And then you have people coming through going, oh, you know, that, that jerk Curtis, like he was really lying. Like mm -hmm. all these are lies. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, yeah, let's talk about all these images and, and kind of work through that. Yeah, because, you know, that that's one thing that I was thinking about. It, it's complex, like history is complex, right? And, and so for you as a historian, as an archivist, when you look at a collection and what he did and, and how he went about it, does it, in your view, anyway, change the impact of his work, of the historical value of his work, even though some of it is a little fudged? Nowadays, we're throwing everything out. It's like, well, that doesn't fit our modern narrative. Get rid of it. Is there still historical value in his work in the sense of the photos based off of what he may or may not have done? The disclaimer I should offer at this point is that, you know, I'm not an anthropologist and I'm not an ethnographer. Sure. He, he came at it with support from the Smithsonian mm -hmm. and uh, who he got to edit the volumes. He wrote the volumes, but then he had someone from the Smithsonian edit them. He was not accepted by the field that basically became anthropology at Columbia University. He was not accepted by academia, and it actually kind of hurt his sales with universities. But he was taking, you know, he was an amateur historian or an amateur ethnographer. And, you know, that academia sometimes has problems with that because you're not doing the, you're not approaching the subject with the discipline you should, right? Right. Um, and and that's totally legit. That's a totally legit critique of what Curtis is doing. But that doesn't mean that a lot of the data he's collecting or a lot of the stories he's collecting or a lot of the songs he's literally recording, that they have no value. 
I mean, I think there's a lot of value in that. And then these portraits kind of, they have that documentary aspect of all photography, right? But then they also have, they, they go the extra mile in terms of style and stylistic that I, I think still, you know, appeals to us today, whether you're a, you know, whether you love Curtis or hate Curtis, I, mm-hmm. you can't deny that they're amazing and powerful and very direct images. Yeah, they, they most certainly are. As I said, they stand out, they jump off the paper to you as a, as a modern viewer looking at this. It's, they're very stunning photos. And as you mentioned, his whole body of work is impressive and stunning and documentarian in, in that kind of way. And so lastly, because we are hard up against it here, in what ways does the Edward Curtis collection enhance the purpose of the Whitliff collections? And how would not having this impact the overall quality? Well, of course, photography is a key part of what we do and what we collect at, at the Whitliff. And I think, I think where I'll go with that question is, I love that we can have this kind of permanent display of his work. We rotate the images, but Curtis will be with us for a long time because it really is a great entry point for students to think about photography, to think about what that truth is or what it, how manipulated it is. Mm-hmm. And of course, issues around one race creating art about another race, right? That's, that's a <laughs> endlessly rich topic to mm-hmm. think about and talk about and you know i that we can inspire students to love or hate or but discuss it is really where i get really excited when i see people walking through that gallery i think that's a wonderful point and i think that discussion is needed in all these kind of areas with regard to history and i think you're living the mission which is which is wonderful to hear and and to hear you say so dr david coleman thank you for spending time with us we could go hours on edward curtis we could go hours on everything else that you guys have over there it's endlessly fascinating thank you for being here you're very welcome my pleasure and thank you all for the pleasure of your time in downloading this episode we'll be back next month and until then stay well and stay informed big ideas txst is a presentation of texas state university Subscribe to experience more innovative, thought-provoking content. If you like what you hear, consider leaving us a starred review, five if possible. The views expressed during this program are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily represent those of the university. Big Ideas is hosted by Daniel Seed, produced by Jamie Bloschke. Strategic consultant is Kelly Raz. When you visit a professor during their office hours, you're there to talk about the class or your grade, but have you ever just talked about their life, their journey? On Texas State's new podcast, Office Hours, students chat with professors they've never met to dig deep into their lives, how they got to where they are today, and advice that lasts. You never know what you might learn from a simple conversation. Listen on Apple Music or Spotify. Episodes release every other Wednesday.